Thank you all for coming. And I just want to say a, a little thing. This morning, the two services this morning at, at, here at church were phenomenal. And something happened in the second service, which I think you all need to know about. Because before I share my story, I want to share with you a really, really current story. So where is Leanne? Where are you sitting? Okay. Give her a round of applause as she heads on up. In your own time. Now, Leanne, I don't mean like in terms of your ensemble. I mean, in terms from this morning service and now, what were you wearing this morning that you're not wearing now? Hearing aids. Hearing aids. I haven't finished. Leanne came to this morning service with hearing aids. Two hearing aids, one in each ear. Leanne came forward for prayer. I, I wasn't the one that actually prayed for her. One of the other team from the church prayed for her. And she came up to me afterwards and said, I can hear. I can hear. I've took my hearing aids out. I can hear. Now, there are probably loads of you sat there thinking, no, no, a load of rubbish. Shout out if you know Leanne and you've known her for a number of years. Shout out. Can you all confirm that Leanne had hearing aids in? Okay, we're going to try something. I'm going to whisper something in Leanne's ear. And she's going to repeat what I say. And we'll see if this works. Jesus loves you, Lord. Leanne, thank you very much. Thank you so much. Give Leanne a round of applause. You wanted a current story? There you go. You ever wanted proof that God is real? There you go. You explain that to me any other way. She came out for prayer. She was prayed for. She couldn't hear. Now she can. It doesn't get any clearer, does it? It doesn't get any plainer than that. If you want to know who this God is, if you want to know what that means to you, if you're sat there thinking, hang on a minute, does that mean God is real? And if that means God is real... What am I going to do about it? Well, I'd like to make a humble suggestion to you. You better find out more. Sign up to Alpha. I want to share with you some, uh, some of my journey. It was at um, New Day two years ago. Was anybody here that was at New Day two years ago? Was anybody at New Day last year came to the seminar? Tumbleweeds. <laughs> People just don't come to my seminars. I can't think why. Maybe they're not so comfortable. Um, I want to share with you some of my journey. Some of the guys heard me speak at New Day a couple of years ago. But I want you to be, I want audience participation. Okay, I know that you think you've come to church, but contrary to popular belief, we're not boring. And we're not quiet, and we're certainly not normal. Okay, we're definitely weird. So I want a bit of audience participation. So you are allowed to laugh. That's good, you've tried that one already. And the guys at Noonay know this. I like to encourage people to unlock their inner American. I, I, I really do. I, haven't done, I didn't do this this morning, and I, and I like to do it tonight. We've grown up sensible, stuffy-shirted people. I want, I want to get you to unleash your inner American. 
Why? Why? Because the Americans know how to big things up, don't they? Well, they take, well, for example, right, they take netball and they turn it into basketball, a national sport. They, they take rounders and they turn it into baseball. Do you know what I mean? They, they, over, they take rugby and add padding, Nancy's. And, <laughs> but I, I, I'm into rock climbing. I like climbing. And one of the things we do is we go out bouldering. And I was out, out bouldering in the Peak District. And my mate, he just bouldered this route. If anybody knows anything about climbing, he just done this route. It was a V15. This is like as hard as it gets pretty much. It's ultra difficult. When he, and he finished this route, and we're like, oh, well done, mate. Well done, well done. There's a group of Americans nearby, and they climbed something my five-year-old could do, right? It was, it, you could have done it with your eyes shut backwards. And these Americans like, whoa, yeah, come on. Like, calm down, sunshine. It's not that exciting. They will cheer anything. If an American can be walking through the park, see a dog do its business, like, woohoo, yay, check out that turd. And they just. So what I want you to do a little bit tonight, I just want you to just oh, loosen up a little bit. Oh, undo your collar. Stop being so British. Stop caring what everybody else thinks. Let out your inner American. So on the count of three, I want you to give me a whoop, whoop, or I want you to do it in American style. Okay? No prizes for the best impression, but we'll see who wins. Okay, are you ready? Three, two, one. <laughs> there you go. We've got one American in. The rest of you, you were Canadian. Good try, though. I want you to relax. I want you to enjoy yourself. I want you to know what I'm about to tell you is true. The journey I went on. Now, I lead a church. Now, I'm what's called an evangelist. I get to travel around the world, visiting prisons around the world, churches around the world, conferences, telling people what God has done for me. You see, this story isn't actually about me. It's about God. I just happen to be in the story. And my journey began around the age of 10 or 11. And I grew up in a, a town called Nottingley, just outside Leeds. And on the edge of this estate called Warwick Estate. Now, my mum and dad, they weren't like most mum and dads. My mates who I grew up with, what made my mum and dad different was that they were still married. That kind of made my mum and dad stand out against my mates' mum and dads. And my dad worked his entire life. He tried to give us everything that we needed or what he thought we needed. But growing up, I had crime around me all the time. I'm often asked, why did you get into crime? And I said, well, it wasn't a conscious decision. I didn't go see the careers lady at school and say, is there a course I can do in armed robbery? It, it was just there. And it starts off with stupid things, nicking small things, and it, and it progressed on. And then drugs came onto the scene, smoking weed, 12, 13, hey, look at me. And it moved on from there. And it was the days of the early rave scene. I always want to confess to being in their late 30s and once wore a pair of white gloves and had a whistle. Anybody? You know you're out there. Confess. But this was the, it was the whistle posse blow rave scene. I actually found some old tapes. We're sorting out, we're moving out. So I'm sorting out the loft and I found some old tapes. I thought, oh, nostalgia. And there's this old boom box and I put one of these tapes on. I was like, this would be good. And it was Pants. It was, my dad used to say, this music, he used to go, it's just boom, 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 that, it's not music, it's just bloody noise. And 
I don't know if I'm getting old or what, but it's it rubbish. Maybe the drugs made it sound good. So that was the, the scene, and, but the, and, and in that scene, the drugs of choice were ecstasy, LSD, cocaine, amphetamine. So whatever drugs we were, we were taking, we were selling, because we figured out really early on that if we sold the drugs, we got ours for free. And then we figured out that actually if we got other people to sell the drugs for us, we not only got ours for free, we got a ton of cash on top and there was less risk to us. And it progressed on and on and on and on. And when you do a big weekend bender, you're talking three, four days on stimulant drugs. The, the come down, the crash is horrific. And someone came up with this genius idea that if you smoked a few lines of heroin, it leveled you right off. And initially it did, that worked. But the problem was that it stopped being just a post-weekend thing. And it ended up being a couple of times a week thing and three times a week thing. Before you know it, it was the thing. So that became the main drug we were using. So it became the main drug we were selling. And then we end up bringing big shipments in. So we've got stuff coming in via Hull Docks mainly. And I'm living this life and this lifestyle. I'd overdosed half a dozen times. I've been, I'd been stabbed. I've been shot at. There's one occasion where a mate of mine, he, he got arrested on a, on a stupid assault charge. But he'd arranged to do a meet up, up at Hull Docks. So I took his car to go and do the meet. And I met this guy was there. I met him, pulled up. I wound the window down. And I started chatting with him. And as I'm chatting with him, I hear the, the crack of gunfire. It's a very distinct sound. And the next thing I know, the headrest on the driver's seat exploded and the back window went through. So this bullet had passed in between us both, both of our heads, and passed through the car. And to this day, I have no idea whether they were shooting at him, shooting at me, or shooting because they thought I was my mate. I don't know. Forget what you see on TV. I filled my shorts, I put it in first, and I was gone. So I was flying by the seat of my pants. Life wasn't going to last much longer. Either I was going to kill myself through the stupid things we were doing or someone else was going to do the job. We'd made a lot of enemies. There's a lot of turf conflict, wars going on. In fact, when I got arrested, you you may have picked it up on the news, Uh, a Land Rover full of guys were found dead. Well, that's because we'd been locked up and people were arguing over the territory that we'd had. So these were the kind of people we were rolling with. So when I got locked up, the police were very, very interested, not just in me, but in my associates, the people that were still out, the people that are further up the ladder than me, the people that I was underneath, very interested in them. To the degree, I only found this out afterwards, that while I was arrested, while I was being questioned, the police took my family into protection. Because they were seriously concerned that just by the fact that I was locked up, that these people might just pinch one of them to make sure I didn't say anything. That didn't happen. I knew that I couldn't say anything. I knew that even if they looked after my mum, my dad, my brother, my sister, these people would have got an auntie, an uncle, a cousin, no matter who it was. They would have found a way to get at me if I'd have said anything. So I kept my mouth shut. Went on remand. As soon as I got on remand, first thing I did, got my phone card, made a phone call. Because it had been a couple of weeks by this point. And I said, look, you know by now that I've kept my mouth shut. So I want to walk away. And all I said was, okay. 
hung the phone up. That was it. That was my permission to walk away. Because I knew I was going to be away for a while. So I knew that I needed to let them know that there was no issues from my side. So there I am in prison, on remand. Hit the fast forward button a little bit. Leeds Crown Court, courtroom number three, Judge Hoffman. I'd avoided trial by changing my plea at the last minute to a guilty plea. I was guilty. I was banged to rights. The evidence that was stacked up against me, if I'd have gone to trial, it'd have gone worse for me. My brief had told me to expect 10 years and up. So on the day of sentencing, when he passed down seven and a half years, I appealed it later and got it knocked down to five and a half. But on that day, when he knocked down seven and a half years, it should have felt like a result. It should have felt like I'd scored a result, but I remember him saying seven and a half years. I remember him saying that. But I don't remember any of the gubbins or the summing up stuff. I don't remember any of that that he said after it. Because I was using every ounce of my strength just to stop my legs from buckling out underneath me. I was holding on to that bar. And all I could see for me was that that seven and a half years and it was stretched out right in front of me. And something snapped inside me. And when they took me back down to the holding cells, I flipped. I lost it completely. Punching the door, kicking, screaming, shouting, swearing. The group four boys who, who ran the security at the Leeds Crown Court opened up a little bit and went, look, if you calm down, we'll let you see your family for 10 minutes. They had this visiting area with a big perspex screen. We're there on one side, you're on the other. So I calmed down, they took me through. And I had to do then the hardest thing I'd done up to that point in my life. Because on that side of the screen, you've got your whole family bawling their eyes out. And you're on this side, and you can't cry. Because you've got to let them believe everything's okay. The truth is, nothing was okay. Nothing. Took me away. It was late by this time. By the time I got put back in the sweat box, took back to HMP Doncaster, it was late. Got processed, put back onto D-Wing. I've made a decision. That's it. If I'm going to be bad, I'm going to be the best kind of bad I can possibly be. I'd already carried a reputation in which kept me safe. It kept me comfortable. But now it was time to ramp it up. That first morning out, they'd unlocked us for breakfast after roll call. I came down on D-Wing in H&P Doncaster at the time. There was a pool table on the ground floor. There's two lads, uh, the cleaners on the wing, they were stood by the pool table. I thought one of them said something directed towards me. So I casually walked over, picked up one of the pool balls off the table, and I smashed it around his head. And had him pinned on the floor, beating him. Screws came running in, dragged me off. That one scored me three weeks in the block. You think I might have learnt my lesson. They brought me back onto the wing after my time in the block. Put me back on the same wing, because the lad I'd assaulted had been shipped out anyway. Brought me back onto the wing. Breakfast time again. I don't know what it was about breakfast. I think it was a cranky before I'd eaten. But this time, I made it as far as the servery. Got to the servery and the, the screw, sorry, politically correct, prison officer, standing behind the counter. I took what he said to be disrespectful. And he said it in front of all the lads. So I dragged him over the counter and I started beating him. Now that one nearly landed me outside charges. But what it did do is it got me shipped out. And I kept repeating the same behavior. 
until they shipped me all the way down to Leicester, a grotty prison called HMP Glenparva. Horrible prison. Old three-story prison. And they put me up on the threes. And I thought, I've got to do something drastic in here to get shipped out quick. So that morning, that prison, the regime was 23, 24-hour rotation lockdown. So every second day, you had an hour out yourself. That was it. So they opened us up, and I was walking down to the ground floor. And I got from the threes down to the twos, and there was this lad stood on the landing. don't know who he was. I just walked over to him, grabbed him, and threw him over the barrier. And he went down and he hit the netting. There's just like a safety netting on the, on the first floor. He was all right. He needed to change his shorts. But apart from that, he was, he was okay. But it worked. The, prison, the governor was, get him out of my prison now. So they shipped me up to HMP Walls, which was a Category A, Nick, up near Hull. And I got back up north, but I also got what they call starred up. So it's cat, cat A and then some. And I got put on the wing and they the, had mostly long-term prisoners in. Guys serving triple life sentences, etc. Which was good because these guys, they just wanted to quietly get on with their jail. It was great and I could just, just get on with it. Nobody was bothered about, I call it pigeon chesting. You know, we're going, ooh, look at me. Trying to assault people with the nipples. And you've all seen them do it. Come on in, come on in. I didn't, I, there was none of that going on. And I landed a job in the welding shop in this prison, and it was £12.50 a week. That was good money in prison. That was like good wages, £12.50 a week. And you got out of your cell every weekday, apart from a Wednesday, when they had staff training. So you got, you got banged up. And I'm working away in there, and the ironic thing is, we were making the internal gates for the prison service. You have no idea how many escape plans ran through my head. <laughs> so I'm working away and I'm minding my own business. And there's this, one of these lads in the workshop, he, he was what they call a trusted inmate or a muppet as we called them. And he's, he's coming around the workshop with a clipboard. This wasn't unusual. They're usually trying to get you on an education program or an anger management course or something of that kind of ilk. And he's walking around the workshop and I'm watching him get rejected by everybody. And he comes up to me and he goes... Do you want to go on an alpha course? I said, I had no idea what he was talking about. I'd never heard of it in my life. I said, well, what's an alpha course? He went, oh, it's in chapel. And as soon as he said the word chapel, I just thought, oh, great, he's a Bible basher. I said, look, get out my face, sunshine, before I slap you. And he did the best Speedy Gonzales impression I've ever seen in my life. He underly, under, and he'd gone. And I thought, no more of it. And I'm back in the workshop again the next day. And this kid's there again with his clipboard. And he's coming around again with his clipboard. And he was coming towards me. So I just thought, you cheeky beggar. Told you yesterday, and now you're going to get it. Wasn't going to say a word to him. Just going to wait till he was in slapping distance, turn around and hit him. So he was just about getting within slapping range, and he must have sensed something wasn't right. Because just before he got there, he blurted something out. He went, you get Wednesday afternoon out of bang up and you get free coffee and you get free biscuits. <sighs> so I'll see you on Wednesday, sunshine. It was a skive. He got out of bang up and free coffee and free biscuits. Too right I was going. I then unknowingly went and did my first evangelistic act. I rounded up all the boys in the workshop said, come on, lads, we're all going alpha. 
I wasn't going on my own with that muppet. Oh, no, my mates with me. So we land on this course. They were expecting half a dozen people. Got 30 people on this course. Multiple life sentences, murderers, drug dealers, armed robbers, you name it, on this course. And I don't know what I was expecting, but I certainly was not expecting what I found. There was three people running this course. Person number one was a vicar. Now, with all my stereotypes of church, at that point in my life, that made sense to me. Dog collar on, works for God, that's where he should be. But the other two, it was two retired nuns. How old have you got to be to be a retired nun? I don't care how mature you are in here tonight. You are spring chickens in comparison to these two girls. It was less age concern and kind of more mummy returns. What I was looking at. Don't know how they were walking, talking and breathing, but they were. So I'm just sat there thinking, what have I come to? And again, with all my stereotypes, if somebody said to me, you know, paint a picture of a fine Christian woman, these girls ticked every one of my stereotype boxes of Christians. Sandals with socks, hardcore commando Christians, and a slight moustache. I later discovered not all Christian women had the optional moustache. Found one that didn't have one and married a quick... So I'm thinking, what have I come to? This is not worth obnobs. Chocolate ones, maybe, but not plain ones. So we just started giving them a hard time, really laying into them. The usual arguments, God doesn't exist. Even if, even if he did, what's he ever done for me? What can you possibly tell me about life and living? You've been locked in a nunnery for 900 years. You're older than Yoda. And that's the tame stuff. It was abusive what we were saying to these girls. I use the word girls loosely. Well, you give them such a hard time. And the thing that stopped me, personally, it wasn't, it wasn't what they said, because I wasn't really listening. But it was how they did it. You see, for every hurtful thing I had for them, they came back at me with love and compassion. Now, I was sat there and I genuinely believed that I would never have the capacity to love or feel loved ever again. I was dead. On the inside, I was dead. All I had was hate, bitterness, anger, violence. That's all I had. So when they hit me with that, for me, that was like getting slapped in the face with a wrecking ball. It just stopped me dead in my tracks. And I just said to myself, do you know what, Daryl? For once in your life, shut up and listen to somebody else. Is your plan A seriously so fantastic that you're not even going to give anyone a chance to speak? And when I shut up and when I started to listen, then it started to make Some kind of a sense. It was week three of this course and the topic was, why did Jesus die? You see, for me, I'd never had an issue believing in the concept of God. I kind of looked at the world and how complex it was and the universe. I I understood enough about it for my mind to think, that can't happen by mistake. It's 
too spot on. It's too mathematically spot on. Everything, you know, if the world was spinning one mile an hour faster, we'd all be crushed to death. If it was going one mile an hour slower, we'd all fly off into space. I'm thinking, no, 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 that's that's bang on. That's made. That's not accident. But when they brought this topic, why did Jesus die? To me, I heard it a little bit differently. To me, it said, why the heck would Jesus die? For a scumbag like you. The things I've done. How many people are dead because of me? How many communities have I wrecked? The drugs we sold? How many families have I destroyed? The people I've hurt. Done horrific things to. What could Jesus possibly see in me that is worth redeeming? And you might be sat there thinking... Do you know what, Daryl? I, I don't really get it. I, I've not done those kind of things you've done. I, I've led a good life. I've paid my taxes. I've raised my kids well. I'm, I'm a good person. Well, you're kind of missing the point. Because Jesus set this standard, this bar. And every single one of us falls short of it. And if you still think you don't, let me ask you a question. If I had in my possession a DVD... And on this DVD, I had everything, and I mean everything, you've ever done. Even the stuff you've only ever done on your own. And that includes in the shower. On this DVD is everything you have ever said. Even the stuff you've only said to yourself. Now, here's the scary one, especially for blokes. On this DVD is everything you have ever thought. Let's have a show of hands in a second. Who would like me to sit down with this DVD and a bit of popcorn, two for two quid from Asda? I've got no allegiance to Asda. You can get it from Morrison's if you want. Who would like me to sit down with, I don't know, let's say your nan? Or maybe your kids? Or your wife. And watch the DVD. Raise your hands. No? They never do. You see, the point is, we've all done, thought, and said things that are below the standard that God wants. But God looks at you having seen all those things, having heard all those things. And he says, do you know what? I love you anyway. I love you just as you are. But I love you too much to leave you that way. God says, what I want to do is I want to take the best of you and I want to make it better. And I want to take the worst of you and I want to put it in the bin. I'm sat there thinking, wow. Wow. God's not just offering me a clean slate. He's offering to trash the old slate. Bin it, burn it, incinerate it. And give me a whole new one that has no tarnish on it whatsoever. And start all over again. I'm like, Wow. 
He's willing to stand in the dock, stand in front of me and say, Judge, whatever you're about to hand down, even if it's a death sentence, I'll take it. He can go free. I thought, wow. And I've got tons of questions now by the end of this course running through my head. But the main one was still, why would he do that for me? And he got to the end of the course and I remember we were walking out and they gave us a Bible. I'd never read a Bible before in my life. And they, gave, and they said something like, we hope to see you at church on Sunday. And I said something like, if there's free biscuits, I'll be there. And I went and it was a Wednesday night. I remember it's clear as day. And there was nothing on the radio. Arches had finished. And I had nothing else to read. All that was there was this Bible. So I picked up this Bible and I started thumbing through it, just randomly thumbing through it. Now, I'd never read the Bible before. I hadn't been to Bible college yet. I didn't speak Christianese yet. You know, we have our own language. Oh, Christians forget how to speak English. And so I start thumbing through it. And I, there's a book in the Old Testament, I now know with my theological degree, that there's a book in the Old Testament called the book of Job, where it's spelled J-O-B. So if you'd never read it before and you saw a word spelled J-O-B, what would you think it said? Exactly. I thought, funny place to find one. I'll have a read. So I started reading the book of Job. And I find out it's a bloke called Job. Not a funny name, but hey, horses for courses. And I started reading, through, and, then I, and the story just grabs me. This bloke, he is loaded. He's like the Simon Cowell of the Bible, without the high trousers. But hey, he's wedged up to death. He's got every model of every car you could ever wish for. They just called them camels back then. But he had every one. And then in this relatively short period of time, he loses everything. He loses his wealth. His kids are killed. His friends turns against him. He loses his health. His wife turns against him. Everything that can go wrong goes wrong. But through this whole process, his faith in God sticks like super glue, it sticks. And then he gets through this whole process and God actually gives him back everything tenfold, anything he ever lost. But he finishes it. That's not the interesting thing. That's just stuff. He finishes it and he makes a statement. He says, I thought I knew God, but now I truly do. I thought that is mental. You don't go through all of that and end up with a stronger faith in God. That's stupid. What is it? Is it stubbornness? No, it can't be stubbornness. Nobody sticks stubbornly to something for that long, unless you're a woman. But, oh, (laughs) I want to get shot. I apologize. No one sticks to anything stubbornly for that long. They just don't do it. Unless you're mentally unstable. I thought, what made God so real to him? I want to know. I'm missing something here. He's figured something out. I'm missing. I, there's, there's something that's hiding from me. Something that I, I, I just need to figure this out. It's, it's like the, the mint with a hole. There's something that's not there that should be. I thought, I want to know. So I sat there on my bunk. And I said the first real prayer I had ever said in my life. And I can't repeat it word for word because it had quite a lot of swear words in it. 
But you can't offend God with a plea from your heart. I don't care how you word it. There's no right or wrong way to call on God. But the gist of it was this. God, I believe. I believe that you've paid the penalty for all of my wrongs. I believe that you're offering me a life I could never dream of. But I need you to prove it in me. I need you to take away my addictions. I need you to take away my hate, the bitterness, the anger, the darkness. I need you to take them away. And if you do that for me, I will live the rest of my life for you. Now, in prison in those days, you you didn't have many things. I'm older than I look. Thanks for agreeing. (laughs) But the one thing you had that they could not take, we didn't have TVs and all that sort of stuff they have now. But the one thing you had that they could not take off you, no matter what, was your word. And your word is what made your reputation. If I said to someone, and luckily, if they got a warning, more often than not, they'd never. But if I said to someone, I'm going to break your jaw, they knew it was getting done. By hook or by crook, any detriment to myself, they knew. Now I'd said it, I was going to follow through on it. So when I said this to God, I, I said it with that level of sincerity. With the same passion and sincerity, I'd live my criminal life. I was calling out to God in the same way. So I was hoping for some form of a response. I wasn't being selfish. I wasn't asking for a a visit from an angel or a shaking cell door or a a booming voice. Yes, my son. But a warm, fuzzy feeling would have done. Nothing. Flat as a pancake. Cheers for listening. I'm off to bed. But when I woke up the next morning, there was a series of very, very freaky events. Freaky event number one. I was always gacking for a cigarette first thing in the morning. So I'd always roll one before I went to bed. I could just roll over in my bunk, grab it and smoke it before I got up. Woke up, as I always had done. Rolled over to grab the cig, as I always had done. Everything about it made me want to be sick. The, the smell of it, the touch of it, the thought of it, everything made me want to be sick. I thought, have I eaten something dodgy? Have I picked up a stomach? But what's going on? Couldn't be around it. I had to get rid of it. So I put it out my cell window. I sat up on my bunk thinking, I'm going to throw up here. What's going on? Looked over on my desk and there's my tobacco, my golden Virginia, fresh two-ounce pouch. Rizzler's wick lighter there. And I had to get rid of them. I couldn't stand them. So I got them and I put them out the cell window too. And then I just started to calm down and the, and the nausea was, was abating a little bit. And just as I was starting to feel better, the thought of my weed popped into my head. Don't know why. I always had enough for a couple of spliffs in the cell. And the thought of it popped in my head. And as soon as it popped in my head... The nausea came back, but with a vengeance. I was choking on my own throat. 
I know, I know what I've got to do. And I went to my little stash and I got it out and I put it straight out of the cell window. Whoever was on yard cleaning duty that morning would have thought it was Christmas come early. I'm thinking, what is going on? This is, I was freaking out, really freaking out. I just said to myself, Daryl, calm down. Go get a wash, go get a shave. So I went over to my sink and started getting a wash. And, and I looked up in the mirror and I just stopped. Because I didn't recognize my own reflection. The guy in the mirror was smiling. He weren't just smiling, he was beaming. And then I noticed I didn't just look different, I felt different. Everything had gone. Everything had just disappeared. All I had in me now was this big ball of joy. It was trying to break its way out of my chest like something from Alien. If I knew how to dance a jig, I'd have done one there and then in the cell. And it was at that precise moment they opened us up for breakfast. I stepped out on the landing. The lad next door to me, a fellow called Duddy, he was a bigger nutter than I was, ran the wing together. But he took one look at me, didn't say a word, he just looked at me and he went, what's wrong with you? So I don't know, I'm just happy. And he sort of looked at me again. It was kind of, time for a paddy cell. It was, he knew something was different just by looking at me. I thought, I've got to talk to somebody that can tell me what's going on. And the only person I could think of was the chaplain, the vicar. So I went straight to the PO's office, the principal officer on the wings, went straight to the PO's office and said, look, I need an application to see the chaplain. It's the way it works in prison. You want to go to the toilet, put an application in, go in three days. It's just the system. He says, can he not wait till after breakfast? I said, no, no, I need it now. I think more to shut me up than anything. It gave me the, and I filled it in. I wrote down everything that happened the night before. Everything that had happened that morning, the PO read it and he rang the chaplain. He's like, get on the wing now, he's freaking out. He didn't want me going on one on the wing. So the chaplain, he'd been getting ready for morning services. So he was in his full regalia. He was kitted out. He was, you know, the full shebang. And he comes onto the wing and I just told him everything. I didn't know any other way to say it. So I just said it as it is. And he kind of paused for a second when I finished. And he looked at me and he said, the man that went to bed last night, He's not the same man that's standing here this morning. You're a new creation. And as soon as he said those words, I started blubbing. Now, I don't mean a little bit sniffly. I'm talking snot flinging, tears flying, wailing. And when I started, he started. Remember, the PO's watching all this. And the next thing you know, we're hugging. So the, the PO's like, what is going on? And I'm standing on the front wing in front of all of the lads, bawling my eyes out, hugging a bloke in a frock. <laughs> so, so it got the lads' attention. The chaplain turned to the PO. He said, look, I need him over at the chapel. The PO said, I don't care where you take him, just get him off my wing. Turned back to the lads. They're all in the breakfast. And I didn't know any other way to say it, so I said it as it was. I just shouted out, if you've got anything of mine, you can have it. I had at least 30 ounces of backy being held on that wing by different people. If you've got anything of mine, you can have it. Phone cars back, you don't care what it is, you can have it. If you owe me anything, don't worry about it. From now on, 
No more fighting. No more drugs. No more nothing. Jesus has saved me. And it was like a rehearsed Scooby-Doo moment. They all looked up from the cornflakes and went, oh? <laughs> and it took them a couple of weeks to realize I was serious. I kept trying to give me stuff back. And they're all giving me a wide berth thinking I just flipped out and they didn't want the red stove in in case I flipped back. But I was true to my promise to God. That was over 16 years ago. I still had two years left to run. I was shipped out again, but this was a good thing. I was shipped out to HMP Buckley Hall. What I finished off. And we saw God do so many amazing things in that prison. I didn't understand theology. I understood Jesus. I understood his message. I understood the power that God brings, the power of the Holy Spirit. I understood that. That's what I understood. And that's all I needed. So we saw some amazing things. And when it came time for release, there's quite a few options of where to go. Different churches saying, well, come here, work with us, come and do this, come and do that. I had a place offered at a Bible college. A very nice Bible college. Cliff College offered me a place. The principal actually came to the prison to interview me. But there was one. One. It's called Hope Corner Community Church in Runcorn. New church plant. Hadn't been going long. The pastor came up to see me because one of the ladies in the church, her ex-husband was in the same prison. And he'd become a Christian himself. And she'd seen such a massive change in him. She went back to her pastor and said, you've got to visit that prison and see what is going on. Because even if half of what you're telling me is true, God is doing something amazing. So he came up to visit. It just happened at the time. We'd put on this big passion play production. The, the prison governors had actually agreed to do two nights. One was for inmates and another was for friends and family. They opened up the main central prison chapel to allow all the friends and family, the inmates involved, to come in. Never been done before. The security nightmare. But they did it. And on this friends and family night, Mark came. And the first time he ever saw me, I was 15 foot in the air on a wooden cross wearing a nappy. So that was his first view of me, if you like, playing Jesus in the passion play. So then we got chatting a little bit afterwards. And he's telling me about some of the things that were going on. He was saying there was a particular school they had with some real issues with drugs and violence. This secondary school. And what I think about coming to Runcorn. And as I was praying things through at the end of my sentence, it was the one place I couldn't shake off my mind. The one place I couldn't get off my heart. So I knew it was the place to go. Couldn't afford to pay me. Not a bean. But they had somewhere I could live. But I knew it was the place to go. Reverend Mark Finch, JP. That's right, magistrate. Picked me up from the prison gates. He took me to his house, not a home, his house, where his wife Karen had made lasagna, and it was the best lasagna I had had in my life. It was so good. And I met his three children. His youngest is his son, Tim. Up until recently, Tim was 
my youth pastor is moved on now. He's gone into a position with YWAM. YFC, sorry. I get them all mixed up. Anyway, a youth organization. He's gone off to work with them. His middle son is called Matthew. Matthew is one of the tutors in the school that I set up a couple of years ago, special educational needs school, which is now one of the top independent special educational needs schools in the country. Ex-con setting up a school, mental. And his daughter, Rebecca, she's his oldest child. Rebecca is a social worker. She's on staff part-time for the school, and she heads up the Runcorn Food Bank, which runs out of our church. And she's my wife and the mother to our two amazing children. God not only has a plan, he has a sense of humor. And I kid you not, she is stunning. If you want any, any other evidence tonight that God is a God of miracles, go look at some of these pastors who have stunning wives because they are like a dog's dinner. And they have these stunning wives. No other reason to get into church. That's a reason to get into church. (laughs) My life now couldn't be any more different. Fast forward a few years, leading a fantastic church. Running over two sites, opened up a massive new building. Running the Runcorn Food Bank. It's been running for a couple of years. It's fed 10,000 people in a town of 60,000. That's the level of need we have. One of the poorest areas in the country. We have a special education. These schools, as I've said, it's one of the top three in the country. We have a cap centre helping people out of debt. Youth work, children's work. You name it, we do it. It's such a blessing to be part of it. Then my book comes out a couple of years ago. It's like blinking. It's happened. And the next thing I know, it's been translated into other languages. And it's in America and Australia and and Canada and New Zealand. And I'm getting random emails like a guy who's an airline pilot, who's a Christian, and he's been visiting this gang called the Bali Nine, who are Australian drug smugglers who were arrested in Bali, who are under a death sentence. He takes them a copy of my book into the prison. The head of the Bali Nine gang reads my book, becomes a Christian. Then the whole gang becomes a Christian, and they start a church in the prison. I'm just an ex-con from Leeds. Every day that I live is a day that is borrowed. It's not a day that I'm, I'm owed nothing from God. Everything I have is a blessing. Every beat my heart takes is because he allows it to happen. Every breath I take is because he allows me to take it. He is more important to me than the air I'm breathing. He's never failed me. He has never let me down. If you want proof that God exists, take a look over here. Because I should be dead. And I'm not. That's the God that I want to introduce you to. That's why churches want you to sign up to things like the Alpha Course. Because they want to introduce you 
to the God that they've discovered. The God of mercy, the God of grace, the God of peace, the God of love. So many aspects to his character and they want to introduce him to you. Because they want you to understand that there's a plan for your life. And it's far greater than the plan you've been living. Even if you have an amazing life. A friend of mine is a guy called Hugo Monnier. Hugo plays, is a professional sportsman. He plays for Harlequins and he plays for his country. He plays for England. A rugby union player. His life was great. It was brilliant. But he discovered that something was missing. And he went on an alpha course. And he became a Christian. And Hugo will tell you himself, his life is so much more fulfilled than he ever was before. Another mate of mine is a guy called Alex Arthur. Anybody that knows or into boxing, the amazing Alex. World Commonwealth champ, world and Commonwealth champion at different times. Amazing fighter, amazing career. And an out-and-out Christian. He has been since he was 11. His dad was a bad, bad man. He lives up in Edinburgh. His dad was in and out of prison. His dad was feared. Alex could have easily gone the same way, but two things happened. One, he got into a boxing club. Two, he got into a church youth group. God, he will openly say, is the defining factor in the whole of his career. An amazing guy. So wherever you are, whether you are in the pit, in the mire, in the mud, your life is a car crash, a wreck, a mess, you're battling with depression, with fears, with anxiety, God wants to pull you out and turn you into something new. Whether you are sailing along, high-flying job, 50K plus a year, doing really well. God wants to bring something to your life that you've never experienced before. A whole dimension to your life that you've just been ignoring. A dimension that when God comes into your life, everything becomes greater. The things that are important become highlighted to you. The things that are not important begin to diminish. And your life and your purpose will change, but it will change so much more for the better. The stress and pressure you feel, you will no longer feel because you'll deal with it in a completely different way because you'll view it in a completely different way. I'm never stressed. I'm too blessed to be stressed. I want to get a T-shirt that says that. Too blessed to be stressed. I work long. I work hard hours. Last year, we covered over 40,000 miles as well as running local church, as well as being the head teacher of this school, as well as being a father and a husband. I get pressure. I understand pressure. But I don't do stress. Wouldn't you love to live that way? It's phenomenal. I want to encourage you to sign up for the Alpha Bar. I want to offer you the opportunity tonight for tonight to be the night when this mental Yorkshireman turned up at this thing that you didn't really know what it was but you came anyway 
I want to give you the opportunity to discover this God. Because all it starts with is the smallest, smallest touch of faith. Jesus compares it to the size of a mustard seed. Just enough faith to take step one and ask God in. Just enough. And then you go on the Alpha course. And I guarantee you, when you finish it, things will look very different. So over, I believe, just to the back over there, there's going to be what we call a ministry team. It's just a group of people that really love and really want to help you. But what I would really like to do is just now, I would like the immense privilege, if you would let me, of saying your first prayer with you. I would dearly love to do that. If you'd allow me. But what I want to do to make life as easy as possible for you on a leveled playing field. So if it's okay with everybody, the first thing I'd like everyone to do is to close their eyes. Because I don't want anybody looking at anybody. I want this to be to be your moment. All I want you to focus on is you. This is your moment. Don't don't waste it, don't squander it. Be selfish. This is just for you. Now, with everybody's eyes closed, so no one is looking at anybody, what I would like you to do, just for three seconds, so I know who I'm praying with, just for three seconds, just wave at me. Wave at me now so I know it's you. Thank you, thank you, fantastic, thank you, amazing. Thank you, so many people, brilliant. Thank you at the back, yeah, brilliant. Thank you at the front. I want to say these words, and I'm just talking to God. And just so you don't feel so isolated, I want to ask if everybody would actually say this prayer. Would you all just say this prayer with me? Just say it out loud. This is kind of important. There's no sort of structure of coming to God, but the Bible does say if you believe in your heart and you confess with your mouth, that means you've got to say it, that Jesus is Lord you will be saved. Let's pray. Say these words after me. Lord Jesus, thank you for dying for me, for all those wrong thoughts, for all those wrong deeds, for all those wrong words. Lord Jesus, I forgive now anyone that has hurt me, anyone that has harmed me. I forgive them and I release them. Lord Jesus, I invite you into my life. I give everything over to you. I want my dreams to be in you. I want my plans to be in you. Lord Jesus, send me your Holy Spirit. 
the same Holy Spirit who created the heavens and the earth. Send him to be with me. To give me the strength I need to live for you. Amen. Amen just means, have it! I want to all give everybody a round of applause who just made that prayer for the very first time. I want to personally welcome you to God's family. You are now our brothers. You are now our sisters. Whatever we have is yours. Whatever you need, come and ask. That's church. That's family. If you did say that prayer, it is so important. Please do. There'll be a ministry team just over in the back corner there. There's some information they really need to give you. There's a conversation they really need to have with you. So if the person you brought with you tonight, maybe they're the people that made that prayer for the first time, help them, support them. Please go with them. Take them over there. We'll do that all in a minute when everyone stands up at the same time so you don't feel like a lemon. All right? Thank you for your time. Thank you for listening. Thank you for inviting me. It's been an immense pleasure and a blessing.